0: Welcome to the Set and Setting Podcast with Madison Margolin. As a journalist, Madison has spent years exploring the intersection of psychedelics, cannabis, and culture. This podcast brings together thought leaders from today's psychedelic renaissance to talk about the role of psychedelics in our inner and outer lives. You can support this podcast and find additional resources at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Madison.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Set and Setting podcast. I'm Madison Margolin, the host, and we have with us today Sukina Pilgrim. She's a poet, spoken word artist, playwright, workshop facilitator, and event organizer, and co-founder of the Muslim female hip-hop duo Poetic Pilgrimage. She has facilitated creative writing workshops across the world, empowering communities to use the written word as a tool for dialogue and as a means for accessing their authentic voice. She has launched a workshop called the art of speaking from the heart, the art of speaking from the heart, and that she has delivered around the world and is currently facilitating creative writing workshops regularly online. Her work has been featured on the BBC News, World Service, and BBC Asian Network, ITV, Channel 4, and Al Jazeera, and has been written about in the Huffington Post, Daily Mail, The Voice, and many other international media outlets. In March 2015, Al Jazeera screened a documentary about the group called Hip Hop Hijabis. Um Sukina holds a BA with honors degree in English literature and Caribbean studies and is currently pursuing an MSc in creative writing for therapeutic purposes with a focus on the healing potential in Sufi poetry. Sukina, I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, it's an honor. So you're based in the UK, I, I assume? Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm based in a city called Bristol, and mm-hmm. so like two
1: hours outside of London. Cool. You think you might be one of my first international guests on this podcast? Um, <laughs> nice. So, so you know, the one, one thing I usually start off with when I talk to people is just how they got to where they are today. So, you know, you're, into, you're you do a lot of poetry, a lot of community organizing, you know, create creative work. So, you know, what was your path to to getting to to this point? Wow. <laughs> um,
0: it's such a wide question, actually. I think I could be talking for hours about the journey because I think the journey, there are so many layers and lessons in the journey. But I guess um, I guess when it comes to creativity and why I began that or, or why, why that was something that was important to me is because I, I really believe um, in the value of the voice, right? Like someone has we all have, you know, important things to say, but oftentimes we're misrepresented or not represented at all in the media. So the first kind of desire to speak was based on that kind of very premise that like, I've got something to say and, and I need a platform too, you know? And so even a lot of the community organizing creatively, a lot of that came from needing to create my own platforms. You know, I mean, there not being spaces where I thought I could be represented. So instead of kind of like, Wallowing and what isn't, it became a call to action, you know. Um, and the spiritual journey I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole, you know, talking in and of itself. But I think, again, it was just, you know, a calling, really. I think there's something inside of all of us at some point that causes us to ask questions. Some of us choose to respond, some of us don't, maybe some of us delay it. But I think it was really this, like desire to know more and that became
1: a journey towards Islam towards Sufism um, and the path that I follow today. Mm. And you know a lot of your work also kind of blends your spiritual practice with um, your creative practices right like whether it's poetry or hip-hop hijabis or you know mm-hmm. whatever it is so like where where for you does um, religion and, um, and spirituality intersect with creativity like what is that process and inspiration point?
0: Yeah, really good, really good question. I really believe that the marriage between creativity and spirituality has always been there. You know, when I think about, you know, even if we look at the Bible, some of the earliest, like the book of Psalms, for example, or, you know, hymns, or even if we go even to, to indigenous communities, this kind of people chanting and drumming and dancing. These were all, you know, I want to say they were like a means of access to a divine experience. It wasn't just like, "Oh, let's just get together and have a little boogie," or "Let's just get together and have a little sing along." The songs were really a form of incantation. They were a way of calling, a way of expressing. Similarly with poetry, similarly with dance, there's always, in my opinion, been a relationship between creativity and spirituality. And so, for me, I just I kind of see it in that you know I mean that if one is having a spiritual experience for example in a lot of my studies and my work it finds its way into poetry you know I mean poetry becomes a vehicle for the mystics let's say to kind of it becomes a container for the mystics that's something that I'm really passionate about I do a lot of um workshops using the poetry of the mystics as a tool for us to access our own spiritual voice so I really feel like it's always been there um but now I don't know maybe we just don't see it that way, you know, but I, I don't see it. it's a new thing I see it's actually a
1: very ancient thing um, yeah, so you said using poetry as a tool to access our own spiritual voice, you said, or spiritual mm, yes what is what does that process look like exactly so one of the things
0: that I did recently is i I um led a workshop on on the poetry of the female mystics um because I think there have been so many women for our history that were having these divine experiences, right? They were not, we're not just talking about religious people, we're talking about people that were ha- having a heightened spiritual experience with the divine and poetry was the means. And so I used, you know, I kind of, introduced these women to the participants of the workshop as though they were our mothers or our aunts from the past, right, with a gift for us through time, which is their poetry. And through the poetry and through us engaging with the poetry, reading it out loud, listening, maybe lifting a line or two from the poetry, we used it to inspire our own poems, right? Um, And it really became a very sacred experience, actually, more than I could have anticipated, where people were really having these moments with these poems, just by way of kind of engaging with these women and engaging with their poetry, engaging with the themes, um, they were able to write their own. And and by the end of the course, you could really see that people were having these experiences that were finding their way into their poetry. You know, and I guess one of the reasons why that's quite important for me is that sometimes we can look at these mystics like Rumi or Harvest or St. Riza of Avila or, you know, all of these theme all of these mystics and think oh well they came from another time you know maybe they were closer to God because maybe the world was less corrupt and people were less you know uh, sidetracked from God but actually I kind of disagree with that idea like I think the same divine that Rumi was communicating with is the same divine that is that we have access to today it's just that we have to kind of find a way in you know so um yeah very very passionate about that actually.
1: Hmm. And, you know, another thing that I'm curious about is, you know, when we talk about accessing the divine, like what is it Mm -hmm. that enables you to do that? Right. And so, you know, this Mm -hmm. podcast, really a lot of the themes that come up are centered around psychedelics. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was saying to you earlier before we started recording is that like I'm a nerd about the intersection between Mm -hmm. a psychedelic experience and religious experience. So you know, like with or without having had a psychedelic experience, I don't, you know, I think it's not about like how many times you've done acid or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but really like, Mm -hmm. how are you accessing this, you know, um, pure feeling of presence and Mm -hmm. mindfulness and kind of divine connection to yourself, to God, to community, whatever, to earth. So like, what does that look like for you in your daily practice or like in your own kind Mm -hmm. of spiritual philosophy? Yeah, definitely.
0: I think that's a really good question. And I can see, you know, I don't have like, you know, years of understanding or research about this, the theme of psychedelics, but I definitely can see how for many people it is a gateway to the divine. Um, one of the women that I hope to, use, whose poetry I hope to kind of um, use in my next course is someone called uh, uh, Maria Sabina, I believe her name is from, mm-hmm. from Mexico. Isn't that
1: Maria, She's Maria a Sabina? Mexican curandera, like a mushroom. Exactly. I mean, for lack of a better term, I mean, the term is not shaman, but a curandera, someone who holds space with mushrooms. Yeah.
0: Exactly, right. So I remember the first time I came across her work, her writing. And to me, it really reminded me of Sufi poetry. It reminded me of the type of poetry that the Sufi mystics, when they were engaged, when they had arrived at a particular state, um, a spiritual state, the poetry that would come forth from that state, her poetry reminded me of that. Right. And so it kind of, I guess it shifted my understanding of what psychedelics can mean, because I think when we think of like mushrooms or what have you, it's always like wacky, you know, magic mushrooms. And it's a kind of, it's kind of seen as a bit of a caricature and definitely, at least in the media, not something serious, you know, I mean, or not something to do with a serious experience, but it was through Maria Sabina's poetry that I was like, wow, you can see that this is really a pathway for her. Um, Even again, I've not had a personal experience, but with things like Ayahuasca, for example, I've come across so many people or read so many things and met so many people who, again, felt a deep connection to the earth um, that they hadn't before. I think probably one of the things that make psychedelics have such a bad name is just the ways in which it's being presented to us. I think that's the issue. It's almost presented as something that's like, you know this sort of as opposed to like something that's part of a spiritual experience Um, however I guess for me in my actual practice um, so I followed the Sufi tradition and so in the Sufi tradition, we have um, a number of ways in which we strive to have a connection to the divine. One of the main ways is something called vikir, um, which in Arabic means remembrance. So the, the closest way I can relate it is to like mantras, like in some in you know Buddhist communities or other communities, they might recite a particular prayer or a particular word or a particular name of the divine over and over and over and over again. And I think there's something... There's a relationship between repetition and and potentially accessing a trance-like state. Right, you kind of get yourself. You know, you get not that you do it to get in a trance. You do it to connect to the divine. But there's definitely something in the kind of repetition of a particular name or repetition of a litany that has the capacity to kind of take one outside of oneself and into a spiritual kind of into a spiritual place. Um, I guess the How could I say, I guess the kind of, not concern, but I guess the question lies when one is engaging in these types of things and what what our intention is, right? Like, are we doing this to kind of trip, you know what I'm saying? Or are we doing it genuinely to connect with the divine, whether we have a moment or not? And I think that's something that I guess someone on a Sufi path would be kind of mindful of because our teachers talk about, you know, not being... Uh, hypnotized or drawn by the spiritual kind of experiences like that people can get caught up in wanting to you know fly on magic carpets and have these like out there experiences and the relationship between that and the discipline disciplining the soul and disciplining the self um but my personal practice consists of um these, these mantras every single day, this repetition, also the scripture, right? The divine scripture for us is the Quran, the recitation of that. I find that to be, is definitely uh, a powerful way to connect to the the divine as well, because from an Islamic perspective, we believe the the words of the Quran to be the words of God that came to the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him via an angel. So I guess that is, you know, one of the ways in which we strive to have that experience as well. Um, But then also in the Sufi tradition, they talk about this idea of, um, I always struggle to say this word in Arabic, it's judged, judged, which means to to be enraptured. This idea that one can be enraptured by God and that that experience is from God to us, as in we can't make that happen. Like I can spend a hundred years sitting down doing my mantras and I might not have a, a, a moment. Unless the divine kind of pulls you to him, to him mm-hmm. herself, right? This kind of divine attraction, um, yeah. So it's it's definitely part of it, but I guess I wouldn't say that that's the goal to have this.
1: Sounds like a psychedelic experience, or like you know, enlight, like kind of this fully like ecstatic, enlightened experience. And what, sorry, what's the term yeah. for that again? Just, just... so, um,
0: so a person who has this experience is called majdub. Majdub is someone who's been divinely enraptured. It's this kind of almost like magnetism to the divine, um, a pole, like a divine pole.
1: And is that is would that would you use that word to describe like a mystic or like kind mm-hmm. of like a, a higher I don't want to, you know, like someone like Muhammad or like a prophet, or mm-hmm. you know, in other traditions you have gurus or rabbis. Is uh-huh. that is that the sort of same idea?
0: So not not quite. I think a majdub would be somebody. So the the state of a majzoub is something that is not necessarily permanent, right? Mm -hmm. So you you could be a a normal person who's engaged and who's in a particular state and they might have this moment, this this enraptured moment, but one wouldn't necessarily stay in that state. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you do get get those mystics that are just, you know, they're just out there and they're just in that state all the time, but it's kind of like, it's almost regarded as a state that one enters into for a period of time. Oh, I like um,
1: that because it doesn't, it means you. C- it could happen to an ordinary person. Yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly.
1: And what, when you say you do the, um, the remembrances, the the mantras, mm-hmm. right? What, what mm-hmm. are the actual words that you're, that you're using? Like, do they, what is the meaning of them? Sure. So we
0: begin, um, with a word, which is Astaghfirullah, which means to seek forgiveness. It means you, you're seeking forgiveness from God and, What I like about saying this every single day is that whenever I do it, it gives me a moment to reflect on things I may have done that I'm not particularly pleased with in my day. It doesn't need to be like a big major sin or something like that, but like maybe not being very helpful to a family member at that moment or maybe, you know, knowing that I could have done better. But actually it's really a form of purification, right? That we kind of regard this mantra as a way to cleanse oneself. It's seen as a, yeah, like a purifier. Um, And it's also like recognising that sometimes we we will slip up, sometimes we will make mistakes and that's a normal part of our journey as human beings. The second mantra is um, something called Salawat, which is a a prayer that you say for the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So for us as, as Muslim Sufis, the reason why this is important is because we see the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, almost like it's a really terrible analogy, but almost like our VIP pass to, to God, right? Like he's he's got access. And so through connecting to him and through loving him and through having a relationship with him, we might get backstage <laughs> to, to see the divine, right? So developing this kind of love for the one whom we, we regard as the beloved of God um, is a really important part of the Sufi practice. Um, and so we, we, we recite um, a particular prayer for him and the way this is described by the Sufis is almost like a form of perfume so they say perfume yourself with the prayers of the prophet so the first astaghfirullah is to take a shower basically the second is to perfume yourself is to beautify yourself with the lights of prophecy um, from him and then the final litany is la ilaha illallah which means literally means there's no god but the one god but in reality, what it means is that there's nothing in, in existence but the one. So it's really a form of negation, like you're negating the illusion of this world and you're confirming the reality of the oneness of God. Um, and so that is so that particular formula, we say it um, like a hundred times. So astaghfirullah, then a hundred times the prayer for the Prophet, then a hundred times la ilaha illallah, twice a day. Um, and then there are other names of God. So, in the Quran, for example, God has revealed ninety-nine names. Um, and so, you know, one of the names that is very commonly used in our tradition is Yalatif, which means the name of God, which means the gentle, the kind, the subtle. So that's something that we use. The names of God are recited regularly as well.
1: Hmm. That. Um you know, it reminds me a few things that you're referring or that you said that I'm just, my head is spinning with all these ideas, Mm -hmm. but you know, the, in Hinduism, right. Um, so much of, you know, there's so many names for all of the deities and Mm -hmm. it's been argued, you know, I, so I, to give you some context on like where Mm -hmm. I'm coming from, I grew up Jewish and my dad and his community all went to India and kind of were with Maharaji or Neem Baba, who was sort of the guru you know, with Ramdas and mm-hmm. and you know, there was kind of this people coming from monotheistic backgrounds taking on traditions that were coming from more polytheistic background of right. Hinduism. And so for me I've always been trying to like reconcile like mm-hmm. it you know, there's all of these deities in Hinduism. Like are they sort of reincarnations of like the one single divine mm-hmm. essence or, you know, and so when you hear it, I didn't realize like um, in Islam, there's a hundred different names for God. Mm. I think in Judaism, there's maybe a little fewer than a hundred. I, mm. I haven't done a, an inventory, but, um, you know, it's, it really, I think has to do a lot with like the whole, the aspects of, of the divine, um, right. whether that's, you know, through different deities in a tradition like Hinduism or just through different character traits or that, you know, a, a monotheistic religion might, might refer to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there any... Sorry, did, did you want to say something about that or another question after this?
0: Well, yeah. No, no. I mean, I just wanted to just say I actually had heard something similar. I think I may have read something similar that, you know, the, it's the same principle in reality, just maybe personified. But, oh, sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> it's the same principle, just personified this idea of the different expressions or the different um, the different manifestations of the divine. You know what I mean? And I think that's kind of in a way how I see the names of God as different, different manifestations and also different doorways. You know, like if I want to access a particular aspect of the divine, I call by that name. And, and the reason why you do a mantra with that name is because they say there's no distance between the name and the one being named. So if I call the name of al-latif, the gentle, for example. I'm also calling the attribute, the gentleness of the attribute to be with me, to be in me, to be around me, right? And so, yeah, it really is very, very similar. And I have heard some scholars talk about this kind of relationship between the names of God and the different attributes in in more polytheistic traditions.
1: Yeah, definitely. And then the other thing I wanted to uh, comment on or that I noticed is the way that you were talking about... um, connecting to Muhammad is similar you know again like every tradition has like prophets or gurus mm. or you know rabbis whether they're in their bodies currently or mm. you know have physically passed on you know however long ago and you again I grew up seeing people connecting with maharaji um mm. guru you know who Ramdas was with and you know a lot of people in my community were with and so you know my question is is like is it you know, I'm not, there's a difference, you know, prophet and a guru, but like, is, would you say that there's a similar, uh, way of like regarding a person like that or, uh, you know, even a spirit like that is, you know, there's overlap there or like, how would you, like, what is it to connect with someone who, who isn't embodied anymore, but who is sort of like you said, this access point to the divine? um mm, lovely, beautiful question, actually.
0: So uh, I'll go, I'll kind of go back to go forward with regards to your question. So within the Sufi tradition, we do have, and it's a very important part of the tradition, which is a Sufi Sheikh, right? So very, very similar to, to a guru and also extremely important um, with regards to having a, a, a representation, a physical embodied manifestation of the teachings, right? So, you know, for many of us, I guess, not that we see, Our sheikhs are the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but we definitely see them to be representations of him and we definitely see them to be holders I, I regard it like like light holders like if the Prophet Muhammad is a, is a light they are carrying his candle you know I mean they're carrying his light so we have access to that warmth and I think that's a really important part of the tradition I, I was I joined the Sufi path I want to say maybe 12 years ago but didn't meet my actual guru my my sheikh until maybe four years later and I think for myself as much as you can follow the way and, and and do what do your you know you do your litanies you do your mantras you can do it I definitely believe when I had a physical manifestation of what I was trying to achieve it definitely made the path different for me it was it was a completely different experience um, it became alive right um, and it, interestingly as well the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him you know, as as much as he was a man, one of the ways in which he was described was as the walking Quran, right? That he was an embodiment of the word of God, and so it shows you that as human beings, we need we need to see something, we need something tangible. We weren't, you know, none of our prophets were net or gurus or anything like that. Have necessarily come as spirits or angels, or you know, what I'm saying they come in some kind of human form, and I think that's because we need that. Um, connecting to uh, a reality that isn't physically here um it's a very unique experience because at first for myself I I didn't ever think I would have a relationship like a loving relationship with the prophet peace be upon him it was always like you said like just someone from the past or you know prophet someone that we love but to kind of have like a relationship I didn't really know how that would happen but I don't know. I don't really have like a kind of way to describe it other than it just happened. I I almost felt something take over my heart and I didn't really have control. And and so sometimes I'll be reading something about him or hearing something about him and I'm weeping, you know, like my heart is just floodgates. I don't even and, and I'm and my logical mind is like, Why are you crying? <laughs> like what's happening? Why are you having this experience? Like it doesn't make sense. But I think that's another thing that the spiritual path, you know entails is the fact that it is beyond what what is sensible you know it's a reality that's beyond you know what we can comprehend particularly when we're dealing with the affair of love you know so in answer to your question it was just the takeover of the heart really I don't know how it happens but um it definitely is a real relationship
1: wow that sounds really beautiful um you know, it also reminds me, so in psychedelic science, um, researchers mm-hmm. have identified this quote unquote mystical experience. And so mm-hmm. um, they're doing research, uh, giving psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, the main compound and magic mushrooms to um, clergy. So, you know, religious professionals, priests, imams, rabbis, whoever. Um, and the idea is that people who are religious professionals already have the vocabulary to talk about Mm -hmm. mysticism. And then when they already have that, and then they line it up against the experience that they had um, under the influence of psilocybin, Mm -hmm. like how does it line up? Right. And so Mm -hmm. they've identified these criteria. It's funny to like put mysticism in scientific terms, but they've identified um, like seven criteria that are like the hallmarks of the mystical experience. And some of that is like, a sense of unity or like ultimate oneness, um, this like noetic quality or like feeling of ultimate reality um, and ineffability or inability to describe the experience with words, Mm. kind of like a deeply felt positive mood and just, you know, kind of like this blissful ecstasy in a way. And, Mm. you know, like for me, like if I'm going to do a psychedelic, like, you know, people can do it for fun. They can do it for healing they can just do it to like kind of have spiritual connection but like it feels like the mystical experience is like this kind of quintessential human experience you know like if we mm-hmm. can get there like it 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 feels like there's that's like part of life you know you go you fall mm-hmm. in love you you satiate hunger like you know you you connect mm-hmm. with the divine um there's actually a researcher Rick Strassman who's done a lot of work with DMT research And specifically relating the DMT brain state to the brain states of prophecy in biblical Mm -hmm. times, and you know what he's found is that humans have an innate capacity to communicate with the divine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of this is to say, or to kind of bake into a question is, you know, again, minus the psychedelic substances themselves. Like in when I was describing this mystical experience, like I would assume, or you know, part of that is like this, this. Also this factor of like, oh, transcendence of time and space is a big one and like mm. being in the now. And so how does that relate to like the, liter- you know, Sufi literature or mm. practices within Islam that, you know, again, are uh, commensurate to, you know, what I was describing in, you know, mm. like scientific terms. Yeah,
0: incredible, like so fascinating,
1: the things you're saying, and I would really love to, to read
0: more and particularly particularly what you said about, um, you know, what the religious, you know, I guess, clergy or what have you had to say about it, because I think that would be so fascinating. But um, as you were speaking, again, it reminded me of a, of a particular Sufi practice that we have um, in, in, our, in, in a particular tradition that I follow. And it's called tarbiyah, and tarbiyah in Arabic means it means education, but it's used in the context to kind of mean a spiritual education. Although, in my in my mind, I think it's actually the opposite of education. I think it's the, it's learning to unlearn what we've learned. Like it's learning to unlearn individuality and remember oneness. You know what I mean? And I think even the concept of zikr. Dikr, it means remembrance and the idea is to remember what our soul never forgot right we know oneness because we come from a realm of oneness before um this manifest world that existed in the islamic tradition we're taught that there existed a realm of souls um called, called in arabic alam al-arwah it means the realm of souls that we were and and we were together in these realms right and so we know oneness is the point. And when we come into this world of forms and everything is individualized, we have to remember where we, you know, we, we do vicar to remember. So this particular uh, tradition called Tarbiya is really for that, you know, you engage in a vast amount of remembrance, a lot of, to, to be true for, you're doing nothing but remembering God and <laughs> remembering, you know, the reality of, of the, the essential reality of the prophet and prophethood. And so, that the engagement in that leads one to a state of oneness and and everybody who who does it which is a majority of the people of our path have experienced in some way shape or form this idea of oneness um interestingly I think it shows up differently in different types of people I think I I see many of the western Sufis many of us we maybe have a more cerebral kind of experience of oneness. Whereas when I've been in Senegal and I see people experience it's very embodied. It's a very kind of, you know, people are crying and are really gone. Whereas some of the Westerners are like, "Hmm." like you kind of, I don't know, it's a different experience. Like intellectualizing it a little bit. It, it is a bit more intellectualized because I think that's the, the world that we come from. You know, I mean, we don't necessarily come from body-centric realities in the West. Um, and so, but but the point is, is that everyone experiences this kind of idea of oneness. Um, I remember for myself, when I was engaging in this same practice called Tarbiya, uh, we were gathered with, with a group, my community. And I remember it was a room of men, women, children, and we were all reciting the mantra, La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah, over and over and over and over and over again until the sun set and I just remember like I could hear all of the voices the men's voices the women's voices the children's voices and suddenly it felt like everything in existence was praising God even the trees outside that were swaying and the leaves and the train track and the kids in in the playground outside like everything not only was it glorifying the one but it was an expression of the one as well right and i think and definitely i can say that in that moment i experienced this idea that there's no disconnect like the the idea that that we're not one is actually a myth you know um and you know this is something that you do find people experiencing on the on the sufi path so as you were talking that kind of transcendence definitely um but this kind of feeling of Oneness, And again, people that I know that have experienced ayahuasca, for example, they speak about this connection, mainly I've heard, I don't know of others, but mainly this oneness with the earth and oneness with nature and this kind of not seeing themselves as separate, you know, um, which I think is really important. And I think if we were, if we had, if we access what you mentioned, this kind of innate ability we have for oneness or experiencing this kind of mysticism... I definitely think we'd be in a different place as human beings, you know. I mean, I definitely think we'd be living differently because we wouldn't see race, colour, religion, ethnicity, sexuality. We just see we, we just see the one, you know what I mean? And we experience the one. And I think that is one of the goals of Sufism, is to experience this divine oneness always, that you're always... Because when you're in that state, I imagine there's you're never not in the presence of God like if you see that everything is an expression of of the one then how am I ever away from the one how am I ever in reality ever alone um and so that's kind of I guess one of the goals is is to experience this divine oneness
1: mm-hmm. wow that yeah it just it's almost what you're saying It like it doesn't matter which uh religious tradition it's coming mm-hmm. from like the words that you're taking you're saying like I could they could come out of the mouth of like a Hasidic Jew or a Mm -hmm. a Muslim or I'm sorry, not a Muslim, a Hindu Mm -hmm. person or, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've I've heard so much of the same rhetoric. um, And it's not just rhetoric, but really just like that idea, that feeling, that embodiment of oneness and that that is so central, I think, to all of the traditions kind of. And like, that's the idea is, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think when you get, when you transcend the the differences in religion, in tradition, in different traditions and culture, whatever you're getting, you see it's, it is one, like it's the same divine connection. Um, there was, uh, Aldous Huxley, um, in, he wrote, you know, the doors of perception, which was sort of this like seminal psychedelic book. And then, Mm -hmm. um, or rather it's like a very long essay. And then in the same like uh usually you you get the whole the whole book is like the doors of perception and then heaven and hell, which is like a secondary essay. And he writes mm-hmm. that you see in temples around the world, um, they're all kind of similar, you know, like whether you're in South America or Asia or the Middle East or Europe, it's like these kind of glittering patterned temples and kind of shows you that like when people are at a certain level of spiritual connection or like ecstatic state, it all sort of starts to like look similar and feel Mm -hmm. similar. Um, And again, there's this unifying quality to like all of the different ways to access the divine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but another, another question I have is like, you know, you could say, so what, you know, and oftentimes I think spiritual practitioners, if, if there is one criticism of it is like, Okay so you're experiencing oneness so you are you know you're meditating you're feeling you know you're you're in the now but like so what what are you going to do about it like how does that translate into action toward you know actually just bettering the world and you know practically applying that in in real life beyond just like this like individual connected sensation
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm, that's a really, really good point. I, I wanted to just jump back quickly to something that you mm-hmm. said about,
0: you know, the fact that the things I was saying could, could be from any tradition. And I remember buying, having, reading a book about mysticism, particularly mystical poetry. And it was talking about this idea that like some say mysticism in and of itself is not necessarily a religion, but it's a path. And that everybody who's experiencing mysticism within their own traditions can sometimes have more in common with mystics from a different religious tradition, right, than from their own. So, for example, like, you know, me having a conversation with, I don't know, like a like you said, a Hasidic Jew or someone who's experiencing a mystic, having a mystical experience, maybe in some ways I can relate more to that person and maybe someone who is a fundamentalist or a literalist within my own tradition, right? Um, which is true because there are some Muslims that don't necessarily agree with or like or even believe that there's any validity in Sufism at all right and whereas you know I can speak to I have friends from many different traditions and we can just speak on a particular level and we we kind of get it so it's it's just wanted to kind of um back back up what you were saying really Mm um but I also agree with you I think there is the kind of um it's very easy. It's very, very easy to um kind of want to live one's life like in the mountain, having these deep spiritual experiences, like the world's on fire, but it's okay. I'm in a mountain, but it's in having this divine experience, it experience, and that's all that matters. And I think again, this is where it comes, where I think it's important to have representatives, um guides and and gurus and shakes that present present us with with um, a kind of 360 degree expression of what it means to live this path, right? And when I look at, you know, my teachers, I see they're never not giving to people. They're constantly in service. They're constantly in service to the poor, constantly in service to those in need. In reality, even though they're our sheikhs and maybe someone from the outside might see them being followed and adored and, you know, appreciated because of who they are, in reality, they're in constant service. You know what I mean? Their lives no longer belong to them. And I think within the Sufi tradition, the concept of service is extremely important. We call it in Arabic khidma. Khidma is a form of service, but it's like divine service, right? So in my serving, you know, someone in need, in reality, not that, again, not that you just do it to kind of have a connection with God, but you serve. One of my teachers said, when you give to a beggar, in reality, know that you are also the beggar, because by way of putting that money into the hand of someone in need, you're also wanting the divine to put something, give you something in return, right? So, not again, not to say it's this kind of transactional thing. You serve because this this is it's important, but it's just this idea that as much as prayer is is a pathway to the divine, so is service, so is being in the world, so is giving, so is you know making sure that your neighbour has just as much as you. And there's so much within the Islamic tradition about that, you know, that you're accountable. In reality, they say that you're accountable for like 10 neighbours that way, 10 neighbours that way, 10 neighbours in front, 10 neighbours behind. Like all of them have a right over you. That if they have a need, it's your responsibility to make sure they have, you know. Um, So yeah, all of that to say, of course having your spiritual experiences are important. And of course, you know, our souls are yearning for where they come from. But in reality, we're also here in this physical earth and we all have work to do. People are in need and people, you know, people are in need and we all have to find a way to bring, I like this phrase actually, I think I've seen it in the yoga tradition, like bringing yoga off of the yoga mat and into the world, you know what I mean? Um, And a book by one of my teachers is called Knowing God. knowing god living islam this idea like know god have this mystical connection but live 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 the faith as well make sure that you're, you're accessible and that you're doing the things you're supposed to do
1: and i you know i guess another question i have and you talked about how especially people in the west are so cerebral even about this idea of oneness or whatever and you know what i've found is like through embodied practices like you know, are you know, it's sort of this metaphor, right? And I, I, my metaphor is I like to dance. And so when I'm sort of like dancing and that's a very like soulful expression, it's like this microcosm of moving through the world. So it's like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, like the, you know, it's like, how do you dance like in a studio versus how do you kind of like dance your way through life in terms of like mm-hmm. what you're doing service wise. And so are there any sort of like embodied spiritual traditions that, you know I think again it's there's a difference between like saying a prayer and sitting still versus like whether it's like prostration or dance or yoga or whatever like- call, like making your body do something in service to like the divine, which then again can translate to then feeding somebody or doing something in a more broad way,
0: yeah, absolutely well, so within some Sufi traditions, not the path that I follow in particular, but within some traditions movement is very very important um it's it's you know sometimes you'll find people they'll stand and they'll kind of sway or they'll kind of move in a particular way right so that's a very important part of the Sufi tradition for many people and actually that's one of the parts of the Sufi tradition that maybe you know fundamental Muslims don't like because this kind of idea of like you're dancing and this isn't how it's supposed to be but actually I, I I actually think there's something really important about including the body in our practice and I definitely I definitely think that within, particularly I think for many monotheistic traditions, there's been this kind of divorce between spirit and flesh, almost like the body or the flesh is almost like sinful, let's say, you know what I mean? So we just focus on this connection as opposed to the kind of horizontal connection, which I think is really important. Um, Within the Islamic tradition, tradition in general, as I'm sure you know, the ways in which we pray five times a day is a very embodied experience and actually... I've come to kind of realize that every single movement within that, within the, within our five daily prayers, is a physical expression of submission to the divine. Because in the first position, you're standing with your hands on your heart or your hands on your chest, and you are, um, you're kind of looking to the ground. Um, and you're, you're reciting prayers from the Qur'an. The reason, again, sometimes these are my own reflections, so I'm not saying this is exactly what it is, but to me, the reason why we look at the ground is because we're remembering that one day we will be in the ground. You know what I mean? One day, when all this is over, like our destination, let's say, physically, will be in the earth. So the first movement is to put your hands on your heart, recite the words of God looking to the ground. The next stage is to bow, um, and you're, you recite a prayer which is, you know, glory, glory glory to the to the great one to the one who is great right and so in that state again physically the bowing is a is a physical manifestation of submission it's like you're, you're saying i'm standing before my creator recognizing his godliness and his highness and my lowliness right and the final position is prostration and someone said to me and i, I never thought of this before they said this is the only time that uh your heart is higher than your head when you're in a prostration because your forehead's to the ground and your body is is somewhat um, kind of raised. And so your heart is higher than your head. And for me, I remember before, you know, when I first became Muslim because I wasn't born in the Islamic tradition, um just physically the feeling of being in prostration was something that I had never experienced before. It was so humbling to be in a position where where the face, which is kind of like our pride and glory, you know, is in the, is in the dust, you know, your face is in the dust, your face is on the floor. Um, And in that position, you glorify God by his name, the most high, you know what I mean? So you're saying whilst you're low, you're glorifying the most high. And so again, you know, it's an embodied expression of submission. It's an embodied expression of, you know, glorification of God and connection. You know,
1: wow. Well, I, I, um, everything you're saying just resonates so deeply with me. So I just want to thank you for that. Um, um, thank you. Yeah, of course. So, is there anything else that you want to talk about or add? You know, before we wrap up. Um. I don't know. I mean, if there's anything, I could go. I could <laughs> well, go on for hours with you. <laughs> this is like this. Is, I like I said before. I'm a total nerd about you know religion and mysticism and psychedelic mm-hmm. experience. So, um, you no,
0: know, I like the questions. I, because I didn't
1: really know exactly
0: where the conversation was going to go I just knew what your podcast was about so I didn't have any kind of prepared mm-hmm. um so but every question that you brought to me has been really like juicy
1: so feel free to ask if you yeah, have time of course oh. well how my question you know this is more of a practical question is how can people mm-hmm. find you um like mm-hmm. follow your work you, you know just get in touch if they you know just how are, are you available online like what's the yeah. social media all of that
0: yeah, I guess probably the main place that I I, I tend to kind of uh, be or engage with people is definitely through Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to find a way to have access to people without having to use a social media platform somehow. But for now, Instagram, Sakina, S U K I N A underscore Pilgrim, um, where I tend to share a lot of my poetry, a lot of my reflections and experiences. Um And also, you know, I also run poetry workshops online. Um, A lot of my my workshops are really based around the idea of mystical poetry. Um, And oftentimes, and I realise more than anything, that even though they are poetry writing workshops, oftentimes they really are. People are coming, looking for a divine connection as well. You know what I mean? So as much as that people will leave with beautiful pieces of poetry, whether they're poets or not, I think more than anything, it's really having that relationship with yourself because like you said and I, I, I'm happy that you told me that science has proven that we all have this mystical element right that my my job really is to help people to access that exact point inside of themselves and oftentimes well for, for my a lot of my work is really heart-centered like I'm really interested interested and actually not just interested I'm really passionate about the voice of the heart. Right. Within the Islamic tradition, we're taught that, you know, we've got, like that God said, the universes cannot contain me. But I can be contained in the heart of, of, of my servant. Right. That the, the world's like the cosmos, all of that is too small for God. But God can exist in the heart, whatever that, however one wants to interpret that or take that. What I take from that is that the heart has the heart is a portal. And I think that by way of accessing the heart and accessing the voice of the heart, we have access to an overflowing well of wisdom that we all have. I don't see that any one person has a monopoly. Some people just are better at translating the voice of the heart than others. But I truly believe that people can access the voice, that mystical part of themselves through the heart.
1: Wow. Um, Well, thank you. I think that's such a beautiful thing to end on. Um, Anyway... I, it was such a pleasure getting to talk to you and learning you. so much about Islam and Sufism and kind of how it all relates. And I really hope that we can continue the conversation. And you know, there I am a journalist, so I do interviews all the time. And uh, like I said, I could talk to you all day. So thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. And thank
1: you for having me.